0: Could you please talk a bit about your early life, growing up in Tamworth, and becoming a motor mechanic? Oh yes, it's a very interesting history uh, that seems to um, yeah become interesting once you once you're a professor uh, of IT. So look, I was born in Tamworth. Um, my parents moved to Western Sydney uh, quite early in life. So I was 18 months old. We grew up in Western Sydney for a little bit, and then back to Tamworth. It's like like a, a normal childhood, I think. You know the challenges and. Uh, expectations were quite. Uh, I mean, the challenges were quite high, but expectations were quite low. And I think that's the hardest thing. I think for anyone in a rural area, actually, but particularly Aboriginal community and Aboriginal families, there was always the expectation that once you become of age, you would go to work, um, and not you know, And that was probably the most most you could achieve in life in a rural setting, particularly in in Tamworth. I mean, I still got many of my colleagues, and some sadly, some of them are passed now because. Uh, that's a, that's the trouble when you get older, and I'm not that old. Um, but as you uh, as you get older, some pass, but there's still many of my colleagues are still motor mechanicing. Um, and they can barely walk, so I'm uh, crippled over with uh, um, all sorts of strange problems. So from my perspective, it's very, you know, it's been been a fabulous time actually as a motor mechanic. And this what is what I've always found incredibly fascinating. I think is that it's always been very difficult in a desk job to find the same job satisfaction. You know, you don't get that same job satisfaction where you bring something in, destroy it, put it back together and then put it out Out, and it's such a good feeling to be able to do that. Um, when you're in a, a desk position, it really is just shuffling papers from one side to the other and more now, you know, emails in, emails out. Um, so you don't get that job satisfaction that you don't see it through to fruition and that can be very frustrating. But now, if I can be really open with you, now I've got a job that I do feel that because I see things um, particularly... Um, small projects or lots of projects actually start and have this they have the genesis and they will see it right through to fruition that is fabulous and the other good thing I think and something that um, I just can't get enough of is watching students come to the university do their degree and they've got some challenges and all that sort of stuff along the way as we all do when we go to university and then finish at the end and then they go off and have great careers so some of my uh, students in the past now um, uh, CEOs and uh, directors of uh, in the public service and just doing amazing things incredible entrepreneurs just so that the things that they do is incredible and sometimes they come back even and say thank you uh, and that's a great privilege thanks peter would you like to just elaborate on some of those success stories some of those projects that you just mentioned yeah look I think the the most recent one is um, about 12 months ago. We had a, a visiting research fellow. Uh, her name's uh, Dr. Anita Heiss. And she did a project around literacy at a place called, uh, it's called Ginger Port, but the uh, English name is Santa Teresa, which is uh, about 90 kilometers east of Alice Springs. And we created a book with a company called Galimba, Galimba Creative Agency. And as you do in, in Alice Springs, we were sitting around uh, the pool after a very, very long day at one of the uh, hotels. And it would have been a long day. We'd been, uh, it was a lot of hard work that trip. Uh, and and there was a few of us standing around and we said, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could, if we could create an Indigenous treatment for the University of Canberra? And no other university has done this. And I wanted it to be part of the Corporate Style Guide. Now, anyone that works in marketing will know that universities cover their branding very, very closely and you would very rarely get an Indigenous anything in unless it's specifically Indigenous, something like Reconciliation Action Plan or maybe the Indigenous Centre. You might get a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a treatment, but it's specifically just for that area. So I proposed to the university that we have a, an Indigenous treatment as part of the Corporate Style Guide, taking us nine months, lots of consultation with students, staff, community, elders, and so on. And finally, we've landed it. And so just this last week when we had Open Day, on the 25th of August. Um, If you had to come down to the University of Canberra, you would have seen what that looks like because that that, that Indigenous treatment was right through all the university from the University of Canberra College, the admissions, research and innovation, um, student life, UC careers and uh, and people in diversity um, that was all splashed across now we're actually going through the process now of nominating for some awards because no university's ever done this before and that not just the white not just doing it but the way we did it with student consultation with an indigenous company, the indigenous uh, creative agency Galimba um, working through the marketing team, working through all the faculties, the executive. I mean, getting buy-in for all of that's just been incredible. So, And that's the first time we have done that. That's a great project. And that'll make the look and feel of the institution more, I think, you know, it'd be better for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff and students, but it'll just be a great op- op- experience for everybody because... Yeah, one well, yeah, part of the reason why I did, wanted to do that was because every time we come up with something uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander in the university, they said, "Well, can we get someone to paint an artwork?" And I thought, "Well, why can't we have our own artwork and digital artwork and we do put it on whatever we want?" So we've got that now. So that's one project. That's fabulous. And there's one another project that we did um, was a couple of years ago now. So. We actually, when I came on board, I said to my, uh, my supervisor, um, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Innovation Professor Frances Shannon, and I said to her that, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had a, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander strategic plan and make that core part of the university business, and um, she gave some consideration to it, and she's really open to new ideas, and it was a pretty fresh idea, and said why not? So we actually did. So we actually put the um, put a strategic plan together, Aboriginal Trust Strategic Plan, um, and that has that has driven a lot of change in the university. On top of that, we have a reconciliation action plan, but what we did something a little bit novel. We actually made the reconciliation action plan. The operational or the implementation plan for the strategic plan. So they're very aligned. So you've got the high level um, strategic plan, the Aboriginal and Torres Strategic Plan, then you've got a lower level operational reconciliation action plan that are strategically aligned. And we're driving some really in- interesting innovation uh, through that. So they're the couple of the really big projects we've, we've managed to land. Um, and, of course, you know, so much more to, to continue. Why does the necessity of the internet connectivity in remote Indigenous communities hold the highest priority for you, Peter? Oh, that's a good question, because I think the remote communities are so disadvantaged in ICTs, In ter- I'm saying disadvantaged in terms of geography, right? So there's, you know, lack of services. So ICTs can bring anything to your, you know, into your bedroom, into your lounge room, into your house. So things like uh, movies, things like um, the bank, things like commerce, like online sales. I mean, of course, things like Etsy, where it's a little uh, website where you can actually have your own business. So you can bring commerce and, and entertainment, but importantly, you can also bring online health and and telehealth, medical health uh, through ICTs into the into the um, into your bedroom or into your home. Um, of course, the difficult part about this is is actually in many remote parts of Australia, there's very very little access to the internet, and and as I just learned just recently, even under the new NBN, I was just in Alice Springs a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, you're looking at a, a ten minute drive out of Alice Springs because there are great mountain ranges. I don't know if you've ever been to Alice Springs. There's huge mountain ranges around Alice Springs. You'd be very surprised. I know I was when I was first there. Um, but because the township has 4G network and has NBN, just a 10-minute drive through Heavy Tree Gap and out to one of the communities, there's actually no NBN out there at all. And they're still on dial-up, like 50, 50 kilobits per second. On most days, if they're lucky, um, the alternative is very expensive satellite technology. Now they are like literally, at, at most, on a very very busy day, you know, 15 minutes from the heart of Alice Springs, so that's not a very remote community. So when when you think what's happening in more remote communities where they can't drive into the hospital, you know, three or four hundred kilometres away from any sort of service, I mean, the ICTs are so important; they play such an important role. In the emotional and social and physical and financial health of an Aboriginal family, yet in remote areas of australia there's very little access and that, and that 's really problematic and we don 't know how to fix this and something, um, something that I learned just recently that I' just discovered between the two censuses, a colleague and I uh, Boyd Hunter, and I discovered between the last two censuses forty six percent of indigenous households in remote Australia gave up the internet. And so we don't understand why this is. We think maybe it's a an economic factor, maybe that you know, satellite technology is just too expensive for Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal households. Um, per- perhaps mobility, perhaps there's other things, perhaps the cost of driving in and out to Alice Springs for three or four hours, the cost of that transport may be prohibiting access to ICTs. We, we don't know what research is about, I suppose. But why is it passionate for me? Because the areas where it's most needed, and this is often the case in many cases, the areas where the technology is most needed, it's not. And it's, and it's prohibitively expensive. And the technology just needs to... The technology makes everyone's lives much better. Well, not always. In most cases, there are some challenges around technology, particularly if you bring in technology into new areas. And um, and I think um, you may have read some of my stuff around cyber safety and that sort of stuff. I mean, that that brings uh, so technology brings us challenges. But if you have the right education, the right structures, and the you know the community's right and everyone's set up, you meet there's no problem. Yeah, you know, we can manage this. Peter, do you still say that there's a differences between the use of uh, ICTs when we compare urban Indigenous communities and remote Indigenous communities? Yeah, there's a big, there's actually, yes, true, there's a big gap, there's a huge gap. So in urban, say, for example, in the very urban, i say very urban, i say uh, Canberra, where Canberra is the, uh, what I call a small piece of non-Australia, and this, you know, we have very high uh, Indigenous home ownership, um, we have very high it's a, it's a, well it's a land of contrast really it's a, a territory of contrast we have you know very high ownership um, very high incomes but sadly we also have the second highest indigenous homelessness in the country in the act so obviously there's a there's a there's a challenge there but you know we do have you know, you know the best uh, education outcomes we know that so in urban communities you know, Indigenous households, about 90% of Indigenous households have access to information technology. Peter, I was going to ask you a little bit about the role of data harvesting and the way that it can be used to help manage and involve people in leadership and strategy with uh, Indigenous communities. Yeah, look, it's, um, I think data tells a really important story. And you know what, most of us don't get access to the data that we need to, but all of a sudden, so we know the general. We know the general population of Australia. The Indigenous population is roughly three percent. What we do know is that the population of prisons in the country, the Indigenous population, is about twenty-five percent. And in the Northern Territory, in youth detention, we know it's one hundred percent. So data tells a really interesting story. If I can relate another story. So one of my dear colleagues, Professor Maggie Walter, does a lot of work around data sovereignty and understanding what data what data means. And she works quite closely with Australian Bureau of Statistics and uh, the crimin- uh, Criminology Institute and other areas to try and really understand what what is the data saying, and from an Aboriginal perspective, how you interpret data is really important, and because you can interpret data in so many different ways, because you, you can you know you would probably hear the old saying there's there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, mm-hmm. and that so you can actually make data you know, tell a different story if you manipulate it in a, in a particular way. So Maggie does a lot of work around this stuff. So one of the things that she came up recently, she she said to me that she had a conversation and we had gone to a conference, and one of the arguments about why there are more Aboriginal people disproportionately uh, in, in jails is because the statistics say that Aboriginal children come in contact with the criminal system or the justice system much younger than non-Indigenous kids. So basically that argument was the reason why more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are in jail is because they're more criminal. And of course, Maggie shot back and said, that's a real pity because Indigenous people happen to be more criminal in Australia, Indigenous people in New Zealand, in Canada, the US, and the list goes on. So it's not, so the statistics say that Indigenous people around the world are more criminal that is absolutely crazy to think that for a second, for one second. It's not actually the indigenous people are crazy. There's a bias in the justice system that sends people who are who not necessarily part of the dominant culture. There's a bias in that even though the same the same offense that's that is the same offense that is being committed by an Aboriginal uh, person and a non-Indigenous person, the Aboriginal person is something like I think it's about sixty or seventy percent more likely to go to jail for the same misdemeanor than a non indigenous person based purely on race. That is absolutely abhorrent. So the data doesn't tell the true story. You go back to the to you gotta delve deeper into there and say, well, how many people are how many indigenous, non Indigenous people are going to jail for for small misdemeanours and based on their aboriginality or ethnicity? You have a look at that. You gotta deep deep delve a bit deeper into the data and that tells a real story where the problem is. The problem is not about people going to jail. The problem is how people are going to jail. Peter, thank you for that. And that is a very serious issue that uh, is being tackled across the world. Would you like to um, give some advice to the new special envoy and perhaps your opinion on his appointment? If I can just say, I mean, it's really disappointing that the federal government and the Prime Minister particularly particular, Scott Morrison, decided that They'll keep Tony Abbott busy by giving him the special envoy into Aboriginal communities. Um, this is absolutely the worst possible scenario for our community. We we know that he opposed the Macarthur, we know he opposes the apology. He, we know he opposes every every positive thing that's happened from Parliament associated with the Aboriginal community. He's he's almost all of those he's opposed. Um, and for ideology, ideological reasons, he's the one that was in favour of closing the communities. He was in favour of this. He's the one. He's the one that said, uh, on the public record, that Aboriginal people live in remote communities. That's because it's lifestyle. Now, that's from his perspective. Nothing about connection to country. Um, nothing about connection in tens of thousands of years. That connection, right? It's not about lifestyle at all. It's much more about culture. It's much more about where you live in, in moving people. Uh, is not a good idea, but yet he was in favour of that. I think we're in a bit of trouble. I think the best thing that he could do, the best thing that he could do is absolutely uh, implement some of the reports that the government has actually commissioned over the years. He wants to delve into education. I think, I mean, implement the reports that the government have pushed for a long time. Implement um, the Gonski reforms give the give the schools and the communities the money they need to be successful. Don't go out, you know, patting kids on heads and, and uh, pretending that it's going to be fabulous, because I mean, that's not that's not right. I mean, there's so much research on Aboriginal communities that he doesn't need to do any travel at all. He could just pick those reports up and then lobby the federal government to implement them. And you know what? Then things will get a lot better for us. We don't want him wandering about in our community. It's, just, it's the worst possible scenario. Peter, what do you hope students will gain from the unit on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders study at the University of Canberra? Well, see, the university has a, an Indigenous Studies minor so in the Faculty of Arts and Design. And and then, of course, there's other units across the, the university, which I'm really proud of. Um, we actually have a, a quite a, a broad range of topics specifically relating to Indigenous uh, community, and that ranges from health um, political uh, politics and society, and also you know, modern contemporary issues. So, I hope that we would actually not only fill the gap that the primary or high school uh, didn't fill, but would also give the give students an understanding because of Aboriginal society. Because there's a couple of reasons that are really important. You know, the first one is that at some point in time, you know, usually graduates will have a reasonably good job. Um, they'll be in a position of power or position of leadership at some stage and they'll come out they'll have aboriginal clients they'll have someone that will come in contact with them and they might not understand why things happen in terms of you know why is it they get upset about a particular thing but if you understand the historical context associated with that then you'll understand you know and you'll be able to deal with that and the other thing is that you know at some point yeah you're going to be an employer as well you know, and if you're going to employ Aboriginal people, and I think one of the challenges for us in society is that very few non-Indigenous businesses employ Aboriginal people. And in fact, some research done uh, by my colleague Boyd Hunter, um, Dr. Boyd Hunter at the University at the Australian National University, um, he discovered that Indigenous businesses are a hundred times more likely to employ an Indigenous person than a non-Indigenous business. So I hope through some, I hope through the, the, the education process that people um, that come into the university would actually get a bit of an understanding of Indigenous Australia. And, and so when they interact, there's, there's a positive interaction, there's a great opportunity. And bring, you know, bring those Aboriginal people along with you in terms of economic development and entrepreneurship and that sort of thing as well. Thank you for giving us your time today, Peter. It was great to meet you.